We live in a culture that has viciously attacked the notion that faith and science can coexist. But meet Dr. James Tour. He's a leading nanotechnologist with more than 130 patents. He's also a Messianic Jew. What a story he has to share. And you'll hear it next on The Land and the Book. Welcome. I'm John Geiger, always glad to connect with you and particularly glad to be talking with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler. How are you doing today, Charlie? Uh, John, doing pretty good. Thank you. All right. Well, we've got a full program, but I have to start asking a question of our listeners. Do you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? It's true. Each week, you and I talk about Israel, Charlie, about the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. They certainly do, and that's why Life and Messiah, a ministry that's in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. Thank you, Charlie. I'm looking forward to our uh, study of current events from the Middle East right now in this opening segment on the program. Story number one, Turkey and Iran have been drawing closer over the past few years, even though both desire to be the dominant player in the Middle East. However, water is becoming a major sticking point, driving a wedge between the two nations. Charlie, why is water causing such conflict? Well, man, water in the Middle East is the major issue. Uh, the Middle East is locked in a long-term drought with dwindling supplies of fresh water, even as the population of all the countries in the region continue to climb. For the past 25 years, they faced the worst drought conditions in that region in over 900 years. The two major river systems in that region, the Tigris and Euphrates, both begin their flow in Turkey. And several years ago, Turkey began an ambitious program of dam building to capture the flow of those rivers for their own agricultural needs. They built 22 dams on the two rivers, which reduced the flow of water into Syria by 40% and the flow into Iraq by 80%. Now, to a smaller scale, the dams also had an impact on Iran, which shares its border with southeast Turkey. However, Iran's water problems go far beyond any issues with Turkey. It's water problems that have come from large-scale mismanagement of their water resources and from the overuse of their aquifers. Right now, 97% of Iran is dealing with some level of drought. Mm. Six months ago, the Iranian government cracked down on growing protests over scarce water supplies. In looking for ways to keep the population from turning against the government, it appears they're now trying to blame the problem on Turkey, saying the dams Turkey has built are responsible for the drought. Turkey immediately rejected the charges, suggesting the problem lies at the feet of the Iranian government. They said Iran should first do its part and take necessary steps towards sustainable use of water and soil resources. They did leave open the possibility of, quote, rational and scientific cooperation regarding the issue, but that doesn't provide any immediate help for Iran. The ultimate solution for Iran would be to embark on a program of national conservation, coupled with the construction of desalination plants. But the Iranians are still under sanctions because of their push to acquire nuclear weapons, and they've spent the money they do have on weapons and terrorism rather than updating their infrastructure. 
You know, sadly, it, it seems very unlikely that Iran will start beating its swords into plowshares or, or start focusing on water rather than weapons, though that's what they need to do. Well, struggles in Libya continue to fly under the world's radar, even though they're impacting the price of oil. Help us understand what's going on in that troubled country. Yeah, at a time when Russia's war with Ukraine has put strain on the world's oil supply, local tribal leaders in Libya forced the country's national oil company to at least temporarily shut down its largest oil field. That reduced global oil output by another 300,000 barrels a day, adding to the world's oil woes. Now, the oil shutdown corresponded to Parliament swearing in a new government to replace the interim administration. However, the interim administration and the interim prime minister refused to step down. This brings Libya back to the place where it was during its civil war, a government in western Libya backed by the UN and by Turkey, facing a government in eastern Libya backed by Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, France, and Russia. The tribal group who took over the oil field want the interim prime minister to step down and hand over power to the government appointed by the parliament. At the heart of the matter really are national elections, which were to have been held last December, but which were postponed at the very last minute. The next round of elections were then scheduled for this month, but that's almost certain not to happen. Instead, ongoing talks in Cairo are now trying to arrange for elections sometime, they say, in the next 12 months, with what they hope will be a national unity government then emerging. But in the meantime, the old rivalries continue. Uh, Several candidates, including the son of Muammar Gaddafi, as well as Khalifa Haftar, were disqualified from running in the next election, but were then reinstated. And they join a list of 16 other candidates vying to be Libya's president. And with the country being controlled by two rival governments, it just doesn't look like these issues are going to get resolved anytime soon. Sadly, John, with worldwide oil supplies being so tight, the conflict in Libya could potentially continue to impact the price of gasoline, even as far as here back home. Well, that is just not good news, but it is the news, and there's more of it here in this segment, our opening segment on the land and the book. Welcome, I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar. Story number three, the debate over the so-called e-ball amulet continues. Assuming this tiny discovery is genuine, what impact might it have on Old Testament scholarship? Well, you know, for those who might not remember, this Ebal amulet is about one inch square, and it's a lead tablet discovered in excavations on Mount Ebal near the site of ancient Shechem. The authenticity of the discovery is still being debated, but the significance of the find, if it is authentic, is coming into clearer focus. The amulet is described as a cursed tablet written in ancient Hebrew script and dated to about 1200 BC, which would place it during the time of the judges. The fact that it's written in Hebrew would make it the oldest text in ancient Hebrew ever found in Israel. The writing suggests a highly developed level of literacy, something that critics said wasn't possible at that time. It contains elements of Hebrew poetry, including parallelism and chiastic structure. And the fact that the tablet contained a curse and was then discovered on Mount Ebal, which was the mountain of cursing when Joshua took the Israelites there to recite the blessings and cursings of the covenant, Well, that connects the tablet to a historical event that's also been doubted by many scholars. So if the tablet's authentic, then many of the arguments against the historicity of the biblical account of the conquest are are dealt a serious blow. And that might be the reason scholars are reluctant to accept its authenticity. Now, for those of us who believe the biblical account, we would welcome this external confirmation of what we already know to be true. 
Israel did enter the land under Joshua. They did travel to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim to recite the blessings and cursings of the covenant. Now, we just need to make sure that our desire to want this to be true doesn't override our need to make sure it's genuine, and uh, that could still take a little bit more time. Well, anyone undergoing chemotherapy knows the need for blood work prior to each treatment, but such visits take time and add to the possibility of infection for someone already immunocompromised. Well, now a new blood testing device from Amazing Israel might make those regular blood draws easier, faster, and safer. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Chemotherapy does lower a person's ability to fight off infection, so patients need to have a complete blood counter, CBC, before each treatment. The process takes time. They have to sit and wait for the results, and while they're doing so, it can expose them to illness from others sitting there in the office. And that's where this new blood testing device from Pixel Medical comes in. They've developed a device that performs the complete blood count, the CBC that we all get in our blood tests, in about five minutes. The device has been FDA cleared for point-of-care testing. It uses a disposable cartridge that includes all necessary regions, it requires no maintenance or calibration, and delivers a lab-accurate data uh, results from a single finger prick of blood. Uh, this can immediately benefit those undergoing chemotherapy by cutting down on the wait time they have to sit in the office waiting for the results. But the company's also pushing to receive approval for patients to use the device in their own homes. The entire device was developed with that goal in mind. Patients could do their own blood work before leaving their home. Regulatory authorities have been hesitant to allow non-medical personnel to operate this type of equipment. So Pixel Cell Medical has embarked on a series of clinical trials to demonstrate the safety and the accuracy for patients using the device at home. Trials are currently underway in Denmark and Germany. Now someday, patients undergoing chemotherapy might be able to do their own at-home blood test before heading to the clinic for treatment. That would save time and provide an extra layer of protection from exposure to germs. And when that day finally arrives, John, we can all thank the scientists from Amazing Israel. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Thank you, Charlie. Well, you and I live in a culture that has viciously attacked the notion that faith and science can coexist. But you're about to meet Dr. James Tour, a leading nanotechnologist with more than 130 patents and a Messianic Jew, right here on The Land and the Book. We live in a culture that has viciously attacked the notion that faith and science can coexist. But is that really true? You're about to meet a leading nanotechnologist with more than 130 patents. He's also a Messianic Jew. Now, if you stick around for this segment on the land and the book, you're going to walk away amazed and encouraged, I promise. But right now, I want to encourage you with this thought about sharing Christ with a Jewish friend or neighbor. What's an easy bridge builder you and I can use to reach out to our Jewish friends? Beth Tavalon is Congregational Administrator and co-leads the women's ministry at Olive Tree Congregation. What about bridge builders, Beth? Well, I've met several Jewish people who've come to know the Lord just by reading the New Testament. Hmm. And so I've kind of made it my mission to give New Testaments to Jewish people. And uh, I usually choose one that has the plan of salvation in the front of the book so that I can explain 
this is for today. And these little pages here in the front yeah. explain why the New Testament is for today. This and is not offensive to your Jewish friend? Sometimes it is. Yeah. Sometimes it's not. Um, I think a lot of it is in how you present it. If yes. you are embarrassed, then they're not going to want it. If you present it as the most valuable gift they could get, then they're going to receive it well. Now, this uh, presumes a pre-existing friendship, a relationship there, so there's a certain amount of trust and respect. Sometimes, but not always. Not I've, always. I've given scriptures to people I don't know very well right. and have had good results. Beth Tavlin with a bridge builder giving the word of God to your Jewish friend here on The Land and the Book. James Mitchell Tour is an American chemist and nanotechnologist. He's a professor of chemistry, professor of materials science and nanoengineering, and professor of computer science at Rice University in Houston. Dr. Tour's scientific research areas include nanoelectronics, green carbon research for enhanced oil recovery and environmentally friendly oil and gas extraction, lithium-ion batteries, CO2 capture, water purification, molecular motors, and nanocars. He's developed strategies for retarding chemical terrorist attacks. Professor Tour has 750 research publications, over 130 granted patents, and more than 100 pending patents. Dr. Tour was named among the 50 most influential scientists in the world today by thebestschools.org in 2019. We are really honored to have him with us on The Land and the Book. Welcome, Dr. Tour. Thank you for having me. Hey, does science make faith obsolete? An awful lot of folks, many of them scientists, would say yes. But if not, why not? Well, it's never made faith obsolete for me. I mean, science studies the universe and chases after it and tries to explain it. The Word of God defines the universe. It comes in conformity to what God has spoken. And uh, as we read the scriptures, it raises our faith, and we have a testimony there, particularly in the New Testament, that is so sure based on historical documents, but it also is a witness to our hearts. And so it has not upset my faith in any way. In fact, it, the Word of God actually, I think, makes me a better scientist because it uh, continues to encourage me to work for the glory of God. And uh, so this is, this is the way I work, and it, it has never hindered my faith. In fact, some people say it, science drew them away from faith and I, it's hard for me to even understand that because there is no statement in the Bible that conflicts with a scientific fact. Uh, there are many theories that are put forth in science that change on the decade or certainly change by the century. Uh, but no fact has ever conflicted with anything that's in the Bible. And so, you know, I could give you numerous examples of science, so-called scientific facts that were never facts at yeah. all. They were just theories and they've just changed. Dr. James Tour was named among the 50 most influential scientists in the world today by thebestschools.org in 2019. He joins us today on The Land and the Book. Uh, you have stated, more than any of my awards, degrees, or accomplishments, what means the most to me is that I am a Jew who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So how does your Jewishness flavor your scientific journey as well as your journey toward Messiah? Well, I grew up in a very secular home, so I wasn't an Orthodox, and, and so I, I had a, a very mild understanding of God. 
I certainly believed that there was a God, but I didn't know much about him. So everything that I've learned has really come through the church, Messianic teachers in the church. Uh, so I'm highly indebted to the body of Christ. And uh, that's where I learned so much. I think that being a Jew, it's something that is part of my ethnicity, and it will always be. So I, I always will look at myself as a Jew, as did the apostles. I mean, the apostles, Paul never said of himself, I'm a Christian. He said of himself, I'm a Jew. In fact, Christian was the thing that other people call them, and to the point where Peter said, don't be ashamed of that name, meaning that the things that other people call you. And so uh, I understand the term, but I will always be a Jew, which means I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that, uh, that I look at this, that this is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. This is who my people have been looking for. And so I, I think it, it just gives me a, a piece of history mm-hmm. to reflect back on and to hold on to. But in many ways, we are no different than anybody else. And that's why Paul categorizes things. He says to the Greek, the Jew, and to the church of God. So in other words, once we are in the church, we are all one. Do I understand correctly that uh, you've had a number of debates or at least offers to debate uh, scientific colleagues who clearly do not share your faith? How has that gone? Uh, What kind of a story can you tell us there? All of this has been around the origin of life. Uh, It hasn't been dealing with with Christian issues. It's just dealing with the science around the origin of life. I don't bring God into the discussion when I speak on origin of life. I don't need to, to show that scientists are clueless on the origin of life. If I gave you a cell, a living cell that just died so that everything is in place, could you bring that thing back alive? And the answer is no. No scientist would say I could bring that thing alive. So there's something mysterious that we've lost. It's not just ionic potentials across membranes. There's something that is very hard to define, and we don't even know how to bring it back to life, let alone making all the basic components, all the lipids, all the nucleic acids, all the sugars, which are the saccharides, and all the amino acids, which make up the proteins, let alone making those, even if I gave you all of those, could you make a living cell? And nobody who really understands would ever say yes. So it's actually a very easy thing. So nobody wants to stand and go toe-to-toe with me on that issue. Those that know, they don't want to discuss it. And I would rather have a discussion. I don't, I don't particularly like debates. I mean, everybody right. wants to have one-upmanship, and I don't generally seek that. But what I'm doing is I'm going and exposing these things of just what we don't know. And uh, I'd be glad to have a discussion with anybody who works in the area of origin of life on this topic. Anybody, anytime. Uh, I've even offered to uh, do it virtually or to fly them in. I will personally pay to have them fly into Houston. We'll get a get a lecture hall here at the university and at, the, at Rice University, and, and we'll do it. Um, but nobody's taken me up on it yet. Professor James Tour has 750 research publications, more than 130 granted patents, 100 pending patents. Hey, what is the single most important scientific fact that points you to the reality of a creator God? Well, it's interesting because I don't look at science to point me toward God. I mean, I have a deep abiding faith in Jesus Christ. I got saved at the age of 18. I know what Jesus did in my life on November 7th, 1977, when he came into my life. How everything changed, how he delivered me from from pornography, he delivered me from so many different things, and he was so good and so gracious to me. So I don't, I don't look for any scientific fact, but when I look at science as a whole, I look at it and I say, this is remarkable. We build tiny little things, nanosystems, 
and that they're nothing, nothing compared to a single cell, let alone a macroscopic organism like a human being. I remember when my youngest son was only about uh, three or four years old, he came running to me and I was working on, at the time we were trying to build a synthetic brain, a very simple system. It could do AND gates, OR gates, half adders and very simple functions. And I'm looking at this boy and I'm thinking, Lord, how did you do it? All this coordination. And I, I would sometimes just sit outside and let mosquitoes come and just, just feast on me just to watch them and, and watch the coordination in this tiny little brain is all of this ability to balance and to, Hmm. to, as soon as they sting, they then release a small molecule that that calls other mosquitoes and says, you know, there's fresh meat here, come and get it. And then you watch (laughs) others come and you look at all of this function, try to build a nanosystem that does that. It's very hard. We we don't know how to do it. And then you look at some of the simplest of little, little things of a mosquito and you say, this is remarkable. So I look at science as a whole and I say, this is fascinating, but there's no one scientific fact that points me to God. I mean, I look at a tree and I see a green leaf and I know that there's a, there's a magnesium atom sitting in the middle of a porphyrin where light is funneled into that. And as soon as the photon hits it, an electron is released that goes down this, this tremendous pathway and starts this photosynthesis process. This is what's going on in the leaf. So I, I see things very differently. And I'm just amazed by all of the things in science that just speak of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. You write, my faith has been increased through my research. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. Now, I'm no scientist, but I've read plenty who are able to look at God's creation, some of these things that you've just mentioned, perhaps, and they still insist, nah, there's no creator. How could there be such totally opposing conclusions based on the same scientific facts? I've often thought about that. I'm I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. It's hard for me to get inside of other people's minds. But when I look at it and I describe this to them, they don't brush this off as easily as they do in front of the lay person. And let me put it this way. When I have professors in my office alone, I start describing things and I'll turn to them. So one day I was in one other professor's office. He was a, a Jew in Israel and he was describing his work to me and he worked on the hearing mechanism in the human ear. And there's a biological bar that vibrates and its modulus, its stiffness changes as you go along this little bar. And it's very hard from in a material standpoint to build something like that. And I asked him, I said, where do you think this came from? He said, oh, it comes by evolution. I said, what, what does that mean? Tell me about that. How does something like this evolve? And he stopped. He looked at me, he says, Jim, we all say evolution, but we have no idea how it happened. Hmm. I mean, and this is what they confessed to me. I've sat with other professors. I said, do you understand where this code of DNA comes from? Do you understand this? And they shake their head. No, they don't understand it. So the way they speak to me is very different than the way they speak to the general public. And so when they're in my presence, they confess that they're clueless on these things. And from a scientific standpoint, it is really remarkable. And that's not to say that one day we won't understand more from a scientific standpoint. We certainly do. There was a day we didn't understand how the genetic code was stored. And now we understand very well that it's, it's encoded in DNA and you get these four-letter words that are based on, on protein alignments, based on nucleotides that define a protein. 
where you get these, these bases that define this protein synthesis, and so that's where it's stored. That doesn't lessen God at all. God is, in fact, to me, all the more magnanimous because I look and I say, so that's the way you did it. That's remarkable. Hmm. Dr. James Tour is an American chemist and nanotechnologist, professor of chemistry, professor of material science and nanoengineering, and professor of computer science at Rice University in Houston. Your website states Dr. Tour will initiate a private Zoom call with anyone who is not a believer in Jesus but would like to hear his story about how he became a man with faith in Jesus, the Son of God. If interested, send an email and make that request. Any stories you can tell about that, and is that an offer you would extend to our listeners? Absolutely. If you don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, you just send me an email. You can send it to tour at drjamestour.org, and I will respond to that, and we'll set up a Zoom conversation, and I do that all the time. So in 2001, if I go back through the spreadsheet that my church keeps because I, I send them all the names and things, and there were 57 people that prayed the sinner's prayer, giving their life to the Lord in 2001. Hmm. Of those 57, 56 agreed to a 13-week Bible study with someone that I set them up with by Zoom and to a reading program uh, starting in the Gospel of John. And uh, I just want to share my story about why I believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I do this. This is what I do. This is my service to Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I gladly do it. It is my joy, and it is a labor of love for me. And again, a link to that information at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Fascinating conversation, Dr. Tour, a Jewish scientist faith. We've loved having you on. Hope you come back again. Thank you so much. Up next, Charlie Dyer with some questions. Maybe yours is one of them here on The Land and the Book. It's a great day here at The Land and the Book. How do I know? Well, you're a part of the program, not just listening, but maybe, just maybe, you emailed us a question about the Bible that we're about to cover next. Welcome to segment two of our broadcast. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. Charlie, I think one of the cool things about this second segment, a favorite with so many people, is that we platform questions that help us see where people are at as they look at their Bibles, the things that puzzle them, the things that challenge them. That's kind of an interesting insight. Well, actually it is. It's an insight into where they are spiritually, where they are in terms of their Bible study. And and, uh, the more we know where they are, the more we can hopefully answer their questions and meet their needs. But here's a question for our listeners. Did you know that most Jewish people have never heard the gospel? It's true. Every week we talk about Israel and the Jewish people, and it's important to remember that they, like everyone else, need to hear the good news. That's right, John. Life and Messiah, a ministry in existence for over 130 years, is devoted to sharing the gospel with Jewish people around the world. We've interviewed several Life and Messiah staff on our show, and we've enjoyed hearing what God is doing around the world through them. Well, now Life and Messiah is offering a free gift to Moody listeners. It's a resource called Reaching Jewish People for Messiah. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeandmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook, which highlights the need for the gospel among the Jewish people and will equip you with practical ways to share the good news with them. 
Janet is our first uh, question asker today here on the program. She says, I listen to your broadcast as often as I can, and I find it very informative and enlightening. And we thank you for that uh, kind remark, Janet. Here's her question. She says, I teach a, a Bible study at our county jail for the women inmates. And one lady commented that the Bible says we are to give thanks for trouble. I told her I thought she might be misquoting a verse. I'm wondering if she's referring to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Any comments on this passage that might be helpful? You know, and I think you're probably right. She may have been thinking about 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, which does tell us, you know, in everything, give thanks. And so in one sense, we are to give thanks, even in times of trouble. You know, another verse she might have had in mind is Philippians 1, 15 to 18, where Paul talks about rejoicing, even though he was in chains while some were trying to add to his troubles. But I think where this individual might be confused is the fact that while we are to give thanks in our troubles, that doesn't necessarily mean we're to be thankful for our troubles, because sometimes our troubles are the results of poor or sinful choices we've made. And uh, Hebrews 12, 11 says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. And it's only afterward that it yields that peaceable fruit of righteousness. But still, if she's trying to have a right attitude, that's a great thing. Here's an interesting question, Charlie. Uh, This listener says, I read a recent article on a rabbi whose focus in recent years was on Messiah's coming at the end of a Shemitah year. It mentioned the Shemitah year being the one we're familiar with regarding giving the land a Sabbath rest every seventh year. Could you comment on what perspective a modern-day Orthodox Jew might have on the coming Messiah? Does Israel today adhere to the Shemitah year? And if so, do they stagger the land's crops? Or does the entire nation have a Sabbath no farming year. Well, in terms of how Orthodox Jews envision the coming Messiah, I'm really not sure there's one consistent answer, but in broad terms, they are looking for a spiritual teacher of righteousness who will lead them to build the temple and unite all humanity in harmony. Now, some do envision a political or military Messiah who's going to reestablish the nation of Israel and the Jewish people and give them all their land and fulfill all their promises. But One thing I don't know is how many actually connect the coming of the Messiah to the end of a Shemitah year. Now, Israel does still officially observe the Shemitah year. In fact, since this past September, they're in a Shemitah year. But on the practical side, almost nothing has changed. While some do allow their land to lie fallow, most sell or lease their land to non-Jews for the year. This allows them technically to have their land lie fallow, while in actual practice, simply allowing someone else to farm that land for a price. Carol asks about a well-known preacher whose name we'll leave out, apparently claiming that the Old Testament and Ten Commandments do not need to be preached today. If so, it hurts me that he's preaching this. Jesus is all over the Old Testament, and we certainly have fallen away from the Ten Commandments in our culture. Your thoughts? Yeah, I've heard similar statements about this individual, but I've not read any of the messages or the books, uh, and I've not heard what he's actually said. And And if he has made statements like that, well, I'd say they're very unfortunate. I'd like to think they were made without thinking through all the implications, because obviously 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is profitable, even though uh, we in the church aren't required to offer sacrifices or follow many of the other Old Testament commands that were specifically for Israel. In fact, without the Old Testament, Jesus just suddenly appears in a vacuum. It's the Old Testament and its prophecies that help us identify and understand the purpose for his coming. But right now, I would say I'd give this preacher at least the benefit of the doubt until either I've read or heard what he's actually said or until he says more that actually clarifies what he meant by what he said. 
If you joined us midstream, this is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, intrigued with the questions that have come in that we're addressing right now. Maybe one of them is yours. Are there two marriage suppers of the Lamb? This listener wants to know. One in heaven for the church, the bride, and one for Jewish and Gentile believers in the thousand-year reign. Yeah, I see the marriage supper as imagery that points to the blessing of the millennial kingdom. I think that's its primary usage in Revelation 19, uh, verses 7 to 10, where it's used. And then later in, in Revelation 21, too, the new Jerusalem is presented as a bride adorned for her husband. In this case, I see the imagery, though, picturing the redeemed of all ages being in the new Jerusalem in that Revelation 21 passage in a permanent relationship with God. Now, personally, I'm hesitant to push the imagery too far since the idea of God being joined with Israel and with the church are important realities, even though the two groups are distinct. But when the imagery of the marriage supper is used there in Revelation 19, it seems to point to the joy that will be part of the kingdom experience for all God's followers. Here's one from Alice. We know Jesus died on Passover, the day of preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Knowing this, why do we not celebrate Crucifixion Day on Passover? Yeah, I think the key is to realize that the focus for the early church was not on the date of Jesus' crucifixion as much as it was on the day of his resurrection, which took place on the first day of the week, that is Sunday. Now, this event was so significant that the early church began meeting on the first day of the week. And eventually the church established Easter, Resurrection Sunday, as the first Sunday following the first full moon after the spring equinox. And since Jesus was crucified on Friday, just prior to the Sabbath, this formula also preserves the proper day of the week for both the crucifixion and the resurrection. The Jewish calendar, and this is what I don't think people always recognize, uh, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, which means the specific day of Passover moves throughout the week. Passover and Good Friday usually occur close to one another on the calendar, but they seldom align on the same day of the week. Thanks for that question, Alice. Here's one from Robert. I've been very fortunate to have married the girl of my life. We've been married for 47 years, and our love for each other has only grown over the years. I'm not afraid of dying and look forward to seeing God, friends, and family, but I also wanted to spend eternity with my wife in heaven. For my reading of the Bible, we're going to be like angels in heaven who do not marry. Thus, I guess marriage will not be in heaven. That bothers me, and I don't understand God's reasoning for that. Do you have any other thoughts about this situation from a biblical perspective? Well, the only direct answer to your question actually comes from the words of Jesus that you alluded to. He was responding to a trick question from the Sadducees regarding who would be the husband of a woman who was married multiple times. And he said, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's Matthew 22, verse 30. So according to Jesus, a marriage relationship between a husband and wife does not continue on into eternity. Now, Paul uses the reality that marriage only continues through this life as an illustration, actually, in Romans 7. His point there is that physical death releases a person from a personal commitment, including even something as intimate as a marriage relationship. Now, having said that, I do have some observations that might provide some comfort. First, I believe the Bible does teach that we'll recognize others in heaven. You know, Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Abraham and the rich man and Lazarus all recognized each other in the afterlife. Now, it's a parable. But I can't imagine Jesus teaching something that wasn't grounded in reality. And in this case, part of that reality is that these individuals recognized each other after death. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, Paul offered comfort to the believers in Thessalonica by explaining to them 
how the dead in Christ will be raised, followed by those believers who are still alive to be with the Lord forever. Now, I believe part of the comfort comes from the fact that we'll see and recognize our believing loved ones who've passed away. I think part of the struggle is we can't even begin to imagine what it's going to be like in our new glorified bodies in heaven. Uh, We will fully see and know and love Jesus when we finally get to look directly at him. Like the old song says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Uh, We'll know and love our family and friends, but we'll also get to know and interact and love believers of all ages. It's not that we'll love our spouse any less. We'll love them and others just in a totally different capacity. So rather than grieving over a relationship that does end at death, I think we should focus on the relationships that we'll be able to form in heaven with Jesus, our spouse, and myriads of other believers. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. Maybe you'd like to hear these questions again, process them a bit further. You know, every program is available to you at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's Devotional is next. Stick around. Details, trivia, facts. We're curious people and we love them all. And our web-savvy world only feeds that unending hunger for insider information, right? But the Bible, interestingly enough, sometimes hides details from us for reasons only God knows. That's the case today here on The Land and the Book as Dr. Charlie Dyer takes us to, get this now, an unnamed mountain. It's a mystery we'll get right to after this quick testimony I want you to hear. Hi, my name is John Mitchell. We uh, toured the Sea of Galilee and went down to the Dead Sea and went to Jerusalem. And it just opened up the Bible to me more than before. And I encourage everyone to come and experience it. It's, It's a wonderful experience and you'll learn so much that you thought you maybe knew, but you'll know so much more about it once you be here. Hi, my name is Rick Warren, and uh, this is my second time here with Moody Bible Institute to the Holy Land. And the thing that really hit me this time was not the different places that we went to, although they're fabulous, the different experiences, but just as we've been talking so much this week about the relationship between Palestine and Israel and how truly complex it really is, and there are no simple solutions. You know, I'm struck by the fact that uh, as you listen to these Holy Land experiences, you and I can travel anywhere and have an experience. We can come back with pictures and memories, but only in Israel do you have a Holy Land experience. So thanks for that. Well, Charlie, I am greatly intrigued by the uh, title of your uh, devotional for today, John on the Unnamed Mountain. I'm sitting here trying to ponder where that might be. Charlie, an unnamed mountain? It's going to be an out-of-this-world experience. Okay, That's all I can good. say right, all right now. All right, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Our last mountaintop experience in the Bible actually begins on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. I enjoy visiting Patmos, and my very first trip there was probably my most memorable. We had a local guide, and when he introduced himself, he said, I'm not making this up. Hi, my name is John. Now imagine, I was going on a tour of Patmos, and my guide was John. Okay, it wasn't that John. You know, but still, I was on Patmos, and the guide's name was John. 
Uh, John took me to the cave of the apocalypse where the book of Revelation was supposedly written, and he showed us the spot where John rested his head and the spot where John placed his hand to raise himself. And then the guide pointed out several cracks in the rock ceiling, and he said, these cracks were formed when Jesus spoke to John with a voice like the trombone of God. Now, I always thought the voice was like a trumpet of God. You know, the sound was like a trumpet, but our guide John said trombone, and he ought to know. Seriously, though, uh, there were a few parts of that tour where I struggled not to roll my eyes in disbelief, but I was still fascinated by the sight. While some of the later traditions seemed like little more than spiritual barnacles that had somehow gotten attached to the story, the island itself is authentic. And I could envision John being exiled on that small, rocky island because of his witness for Jesus. In that sense, the entire island of Patmos was a mountaintop experience as I focused on the price John had been willing to pay for his faith. But while our mountaintop experience today might start at Patmos, the mountain we're visiting isn't located on this tiny island. In fact, I don't believe it's located anywhere on this earth today. So where is this mountain? Well, to find it, we need to turn to the next to the last chapter in the book of Revelation. This book is a fitting climax to the Bible. It's the only book of the Bible that specifically promises a blessing to those who read it. In fact, the book begins and ends with this promised blessing. Unfortunately, this is also one of the most neglected books of the Bible. Far too many pastors and teachers are afraid to tread its pages because the book forces them to decide if it's really what it claims to be a prophecy of events leading up to the second coming of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, God's final judgment on humanity, and our ultimate eternal destiny. Some dismiss the study of prophecy, claiming it has no relevance for the here and now. But those who do fail to notice that God said prophecy has great relevance for our day-to-day lives. Virtually every prophetic passage in the Bible ends with a practical application for today. The book of Revelation ends with an invitation for seekers to come to faith. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And it also contains a reminder to believers struggling under persecution. I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Stay faithful, Jesus says. My return could be soon. So what does any of this have to do with a mountaintop experience? Well, in chapter 21, John opened God's heavenly portal into eternity. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Uh, Using broad brushstrokes, John paints a landscape of eternity. Genesis began with the world covered in the waters of chaos. In the new heavens, there is no longer any sea. Genesis began in darkness, but in the new heavens, there shall be no night. In Genesis, sin entered the human race and was quickly followed by pain and death. But in the new world God has prepared for his followers, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Having described this new eternal reality, John then says an angel appeared to reveal one last detail. Come here, the angel said, I shall show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And it's here where John has his mountaintop experience. 
Now, I believe the mountaintop to which John was taken is one that doesn't exist today. But why even take John to this mountaintop? John needed this lofty vantage point because what he was about to see was so breathtakingly large. John watched the new Jerusalem descend from heaven to earth. According to verse 16, the city is 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. If the city were in the United States, it would stretch from Washington, D.C. to Denver. Placed over the current Mediterranean basin, it would stretch from Jerusalem to Rome. No wonder John needed a high vantage point. Some might object to the idea of a city so large and so tall. I mean, how could people breathe? The city would cover the Mediterranean. But remember, the city doesn't come down on this earth. It descends on a new earth, one we can barely begin to grasp. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.9, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus said he was going away to prepare a dwelling place for us. And Hebrews says this new Jerusalem will be home to God and angels and the church and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. In short, this is the eternal abode of God and of all those who have chosen to follow him. So what can we take away from this mountaintop experience with the Apostle John? Uh, Let me suggest two very practical truths for today. First, God wants us to study all his word, including those passages that talk about the future. If you've not read through the book of Revelation lately, why not start doing so? If you need help understanding it, get a commentary on the book like the one by Dr. John Walvard that was recently revised and updated by Mark Hitchcock and published by Moody Publishers. You can understand the book of Revelation. And second, remember that this life isn't all there is to life. Understanding God's plan for the future will help you avoid spiritual myopia, a prophetic nearsightedness that comes when we forget that life extends beyond the grave and that God has revealed what the future holds. Someday there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Have you taken time to understand what God has said about the future? And do you know for sure there's a dwelling place in that new city with your name on the door. God revealed the future because he wants you to be certain of your eternal destiny. You know, if you have any questions about what Charlie has just shared, if there's any uncertainty about whether or not your name is reserved in heaven, why not talk to a volunteer right now at 888-NEED-HIM. It's a friend who knows Jesus and who would love for you to know Jesus, to be certain about your eternity in heaven. There's no cost, no pressure, no obligation. When you call 888-NEED-HIM. Hey, our website is, of course, ready for your visit at thelandandthebook.org. If you click on the Facebook icon, that'll take you right to, voila, Facebook, amazingly enough. But check it out for information about today's guest, past and future programs, thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for listening today to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.